0: Today I'm joined by author and podcaster Zachary Elwood, and uh, I am really interested in your work on depolarization and the, the feedback loop of dehumanization and depolarization that takes over when we start to see other people as us as us and them, when we start to think in terms of us and them. And so um, I'm really excited to have the chance to speak with you and hear your thoughts and how this, this perspective has evolved for you and what your suggestions are for what we can do to see people as human beings rather than representatives of opposing ideologies. So thank you for being with me today, Zach. And um, would you mind like maybe setting up a little bit of your background and how you came to be involved in this?
1: Sure. Uh, Try to give a long story short. Um, So I, I, I had a, um, well, I guess the journey you could say began when, uh, Trump was elected. I was somebody who was, uh, posting a lot of like insulting things to, about Trump voters on social media and, uh, you know, basically saying things like, oh, you, you failed a basic moral test and insulting, you know, people in that way. And, uh, started thinking about it and seeing myself, you know, started seeing like, oh, I'm part of the way that conflict uh, grows, you know, started seeing my role in the, uh, in the conflict dynamics. And I, and I have a, I've had a psychology behavior podcast, people who read people that I've done, you know, since around 2017, it started out as about like reading people, uh, reading behaviors and behavior focus. But then I started getting interested in polarization and how conflict grows and examining, you know, how divides have happened in other countries and throughout history and seeing like the basic human uh, kind of dynamics at work, no matter what the issues are, you know, conflict kind of progresses in a very similar way, you know, and underlying, uh, related to underlying human psychology. So I started interviewing people about that and and how, you know, for example, one of the people I first interviewed was Jennifer Lynn McCoy, who studies polarization and conflict in various countries. Um, so I just started getting curious and started seeing my own role and started seeing the the role of like, you know, how liberals have contributed to the divides and reading books about that by, like, Richard Rorty and uh, Mark Lilla and and seeing those perspectives. Uh, and so that, yeah, that just led to me, culminated in me writing the book Diffusing American Anger, which was kind of like my way to try to sum up things I'd learned. And, uh, and um, yeah, that's kind of like the the long story short of it, yeah.
0: So it sounds like you were already talking about these things and aware of these dynamics and then you woke up to a blind spot in yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure. I wasn't somebody who, you know, I, I was liberal leaning, um, before the election, but I wasn't somebody who paid a lot of attention to politics. Uh, and then, you know, it was kind of like, like a lot of people, it was like Trump got elected. It's like on the left and the right. And then it got a lot of attention and, you know, people are angry and, uh, surprised. And I started, yeah, I started getting curious about like, how, you know, what, what the reasons are for people, why I voted for, for why they voted for Trump and seeing how the, you know, the us versus them animosity on both sides had been increasing leading up to that for several decades, you know, and uh basically just being curious about how that happens. And also seeing that nobody, nobody's going to help us get out of this. You know, it's like I used to kind of rely on this like idea that like, Oh, there's some people in charge somewhere who will solve things for us, even even in an unexamined way, it wasn't, that was like a conscious thought, but I kind of like, was like, it's not up to me, you know, it's up to these people who are in charge, but the more I thought about it, I was like, well, the system, you know, the incentives, once a, once a group enters a a conflict, the incentives and and the way the system works just naturally pre-select for people behaving in more polarizing ways. So I don't see, you know, the system or the people that are in power helping us much in that regards, because, just kind of the nature of conflict, like, you know, an angry, mass of people want people who are, who are angry and alone with their anger. So there's some fundamental systemic things at work there. So I started saying like, well, you know, it's up to us like the people to work on this because nobody's going to get us out of this. If we're going to get out of it, all of us need to take our responsibilities more seriously about how we all contribute to these like dehumanization cycles.
0: When you describe that, that sort of awakening, that curiosity that you had around Trump, that it, it, I kind of remember it similarly for me was this, it was, um, I was a, a Democrat voter, didn't like him, was swept up in the rhetoric around, around him. And at some point, I, although I didn't start Loving the guy. It's not like I've a switch flipped and I'm suddenly like, Oh, I love Trump. It was just he's he just didn't seem like the boogeyman that they had made him out to be. And not only that, but even more, it was that the voters, I couldn't wrap my head around how we were talking about other people in quite such a dehumanizing way. Like that was where it sort of jumped the shark for me was. I don't think that half the country although i haven't agreed or had not to at that point i could have said i don't agree with republican policies i i would have firmly said that i didn't think that republicans were terrible people i didn't Mm -hmm. i just thought that i thought that they were wrong about some things and so when i was in graduate school and i'm in a counseling program where we're talking about trump voters and we use this this language we uh, I had a, a professor tell me that we know we're not training future counselors who are going to be able to work with the Trump voter, and so it was this whole mm-hmm. class of people that are just invalid and inhuman, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's where I I started to it it really jumped the shark, and it's like um, I don't know I think about Rwanda and I think about this drumming up of the the language around the Hutus and the Tutsis and the that this this absolute degradation of the other side. And it felt yeah. like we, we went, we didn't boil the frogs low enough, if that's what we were doing. It, they, they turned up the heat really fast. And I think a lot of liberals and former Democrat voters woke up to that around that same time.
1: Yeah. And I talk about that in my book. It's like, I think, you know, Trump clearly, whatever your political opinions, it's like, he clearly was a factor in you know, or, or anger ramping up. And it's like, I examine that kind of dynamic in my book because I think the the amount of nuance there, you know, the, the simplistic take of like Trump was the one who, you know, Trump was responsible for, you know, uh, these liberal side, uh, kind of simplistic views of like, it's Trump's fault and everybody who supports Trump is just like Trump or these kind of simplistic views. It's like, it's very easy to examine, like, for a lot of, you know, for example, you know, a lot of people, uh, just, you know, I, I really do think for the election, it was kind of a perfect storm in that, you know, uh, there was so much baggage against Hillary Clinton. There, there I, I think it, literally anybody else would have been elected except for Trump if they had ran against Trump. But anyway, I think my larger, my larger point is examining how these things have a, uh, cascading effect. It's like, Trump gets elected. For a lot of people, he they were just voting for him because he was a Republican candidate. There, mm-hmm. there wasn't, you know, we could we could point at like the white nationalists or the extremists who voted for him. You know, even even if we have the worst case view of like his early support, which I've written some about that. But it's like for a lot of people, they just didn't want to vote for the Democrat. Like it was that simple. And that yeah. you know that you look at the you look at the patterns. It was like a lot of the voting patterns were just like a standard election. Mm-hmm. So you know, Trump gets elected. Liberals are like, oh, this must really represent. A horrible thing, like all these people are racist, et cetera, et cetera, misogynist, whatever it is, they take the worst case framing for what the event meant, where instead of seeing, like, you know, A, our us versus them animosity has been increasing for decades, B, a lot of people had some populist discontent with the system that was very similar to like Bernie Sanders' side, discontent with the system. Uh, you know, C, a lot of people were just voting Republican, like they doesn't mean they're the same as the white nationalists or whatever it's like but for a lot of people they just kind of saw what they wanted to see and that includes like you said taking some really worst case extremely pessimistic things of what trump said you know for example the mexican rapist comment which is like a lot of people will point to that like clearly trump is racist because he said that but it's like you examine the nuance and it's like you can find Mexican-American Trump voters who were like, he clearly didn't mean all Mexicans. You know, he he was talking about criminals coming into the country and he he wasn't speaking, he denigrating all Mexicans. So, and I examine that in my book. It's like these very divergent views that we can have. And I can understand, you know, as somebody who started out insulting Trump voters and being very angry, I mean, I, I can see both sides. And that's kind of what I, my curiosity led me to try to see both sides. It's like, I can see why people, you know, I, I see why people very much dislike Trump. I, I very much dislike him. I think he's very divisive apart from his political stances. Like it's that part of his unrelated to his political stances. And I also see why people discontented with the system in various ways, non-racist people, c- compassionate and, 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 uh, rational people could have, you know, would, would have voted for him or, or even think, you know, uh, for, very much aligned with them. And, I, I see both of those things, and I think it, it so much comes down to this general conflict dynamic where it's like both sides are just start filtering the other side through the worst possible lens, which amps up you know both sides' uh, animosity, which makes both sides create more and more pessimistic framings or narratives about the other side. And so it just has this vicious cycle aspect. And, and to me a big part of how we unwind that is getting people, to be curious and and try to understand like, well, how can these two realities be so divergent, right? Like how can we find ourselves on the opposite side of these chasms on various things, not just on, you know, and and that's the thing too, is like, when we talk about the nuance of like, who's liberal conservative, like that, even these words are so simplistic, you know, it's like, when we get into these conflicts, things are so complex and the system is so turbulent and unstable. It's like, those labels kind of break down too. It just largely becomes about I'm angry at those people. Like it it kind of like loses a sense of like, what is it we're even actually uh, fighting about? And, you know, can we, can we take on an issue by issue basis and and reach a compromise? You know, it just becomes about like, they're horrible. I don't like what they're doing. I hate them. You know?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. It's like a flattening down of the other side, so to speak to this caricature and sort of a, force teaming with the worst aspects of what you perceive them to be. Everybody is lumped into one. And I i know I, I'd like to hear how how you process the move out of the left and right paradigm, out of that mental how you made that shift. And I not to belabor the point about the Democrats and Republicans. But one of the things that really jarred me and one of the what kind of a awakening moments for me out of this left-right paradigm was really something that you described. I thought, I I know I voted for the Democrat in that round, and I didn't like Hillary. I I had watched what happened with the DNC and Bernie Sanders, and I thought Hillary was completely crooked in that whole deal, and I was really upset about it because I was a Bernie fan. I was I really liked him in that election cycle a lot. And when we all witnessed what went down with the DNC, I, I completely, I was disgusted with Hillary and yet I was a Democrat voter and I voted for the Democrat candidate. And so I fully had this awareness that on the other side of the aisle, there are Republican voters who vote for the Republican candidate and whatever, even if we had painted this picture of Trump as literally Hitler, you know, I, I didn't think Hillary was a good actor at all. And she got my vote. So I, I just had a very, I had a, a solid awareness that people are going to vote on party lines and that it doesn't, even if I thought Trump was this horrible guy, which at the time I kind of did, I, I was aware that
1: you're voting more against than for. Yeah. yeah. And so the other
0: side was going to do the same thing. And so it wasn't like every single person is equivalent to the worst thing about their candidate.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, I mean, I think that's a hugely important and unexamined part of these things. It's like, The thing I see on on both sides is like the other; these people are voting for X candidate. They they must fully support everything about them, right? I mean, that's really the mistake. Is like like you describe. It's like many people are simply voting against the other side. It doesn't mean right. You know, the thing I the things that comes to mind for me is people I know. You know, liberal people I know were like, how can uh, you know how could Trump voters support what Tommy Tuberville said like this? You know. uh, racist comment, you know, that many people perceived as racist about like black people are committing the crime or whatever he said. And it's like, to me, it's very easy to understand because, you know, even, even, uh, you know, for example, a black Trump voter would see that and be like, okay, yeah, that was, I really think that was wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the, the, the things I don't like on the other side, Mm -hmm. like that, when you, when you feel like you're in a war, you, you're not really focused on like, Hey some people on your on your in your group did a bad thing you're much more focused on the threat you see from the other side and i think understanding that dynamic really helps us understand like the kind of futility of like everybody always being like how can you support this random thing that somebody on that side did and it's like that's not how the the conflict works they're they're not focused on the things that you're focused on and they they don't think that those things are that meaningful because they'll just be like well, yeah, there there are some bad people on my side, or they said some bad things, but it's like that's really not my focus. I'm focused on the badness of the other side.
0: Yeah, it also seems like it that it, this is maybe a manifestation of the fundamental attribution error, which you know, mm-hmm. the psychological phenomenon by which we tend to attribute problems with others to their character and problems that with us to our circumstances. And yeah. so we'll see more nuance in our side, but somebody else, like if I'm driving down the road, like a bat out of hell, I'm late. I'm really late for something very important and I have to get there. And it's, I'm, I i don't normally do this, but I'm going to give myself a pass, but somebody else driving down the road, he's just a complete jerk. He's just, uh, you know, totally. Yeah, no yeah, care I mean, for so, human life.
1: Yeah. And that's a huge part of it. It's like, you know, and, and the more, and the more uh, maybe like uh l- layman term, or a layman way to describe it is like, we just are super generous to people who either ourselves or people like us, who we perceive as on our side. We're like, we'll cut them a break. Or we, you know, we, we view our side as very diverse and human and and, and we view the other side as this monolith of all the, all, all as bad as the worst people on that side. And we, you know, like you say, yeah, we, we are very ungenerous with them. We'll view them through the most pessimistic lens and not give them a break for anything they say, or, you know, So Mm -hmm. I think that there's these kind of like fundamental, you know, group versus group human psychology things that play out that, you know, many people have uh, examined, you know, the outgroup homogeneity effect, which is like you see the other group in a conflict is like all the same. You know, you see that a lot on both sides where it's like painting the other side as like all as as extreme as the most extreme people in that group or or as angry and hateful as the most angry and hateful people in that group you know you see that a lot that's kind of a fundamental thing but yeah the, the thing you mentioned is is huge like we we just how we cut people slack and when we do is is very biased yeah you know?
0: yeah it's a it's a really interesting thing to examine in ourselves and to become aware of ourselves doing do you um so what was what's your process moving from moving out of that left and right for yourself personally, when you started to wake up to realizing that you're doing that, that very thing?
1: Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, it came from my interest in psychology is of just understanding, you know, why why people are, are thinking how they do. And I, I won't say I was ever like, you know, super, I, I never really associated myself like very much with the labels of Democrat or liberal or any of these things. Uh, I, I was just largely in a, um, you know, a, a liberal sphere and and largely had, you know, liberal associated thoughts. But I think, yeah, I mean, the, the path out of these things, and I, and I think I will say, too, like one of the, the ways I try to overcome people's objection to the depolarization, you know, reducing us versus them anger ideas, is that I will say, you know, you can continue thinking one side is much worse while examining the, the ways that we or our group or whatever uh, contribute to these divides. And I think that's very important because, of, you know, the biggest objection you'll get is like, you're, you're saying both sides are the same or whatever you, you're saying, we can't be politically passionate or upset. And then that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just trying to highlight like the complexity of the divides and how many of us, uh, how we can contribute to the divides. And that's, you know, you can, you can do that and try to lower the animosity and contempt while fully believing like the other side is, is very bad. And and that's one of the things I focus on. It's like, I think that overcomes a lot of objections from, from what I've seen, you know, and gets people more into the funnel of like, how can we help with this? Even if we are very, very scared of the
0: other side. Right. So it's more an awareness of a conflict process that we're contributing to, rather than addressing any of the content of the the argument so you can still you can still hold on to your objections to what someone else or some other group is is doing and feel very strongly about about why you object to that mm-hmm. but it's yeah, recognizing totally. yeah. your human nature in this process that you're contributing to
1: yeah it's like i mean i think that 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 is what gives people you know, the, the recognition that like, yes, I can be very upset, you know, about this transgender issue. I can be very angry even, but it's like recognizing like that, that's one dimension, like how we actually feel about the, the, the issues. Right. But then it's like this meta level thing of like how we engage with each other, which is like, and, and the thing I've tried to focus on is like how we engage with each other when we disagree and when we're angry is, is can be what creates the very things we're angry about. Right. So it like feeds back into the issues you can create the very pushback and anger that you're, that actually bothers you. Right. And I think that's what the main thing that people don't see when they're fighting these culture war things or the things that they're politically passionate about. It's like how we engage with each other is not some like side thing. It's, it's exactly what drives back into the very anger that gets created that we're angry about. Right. It's like we're, we're help We can be unintentionally helping create the very things that bother us. Right. It's like, you know, for example, we saw this with, with Trump, where it's like, you know, some of the ways Trump spoke, uh, the aggressive ways that, you know, even his own followers, his own supporters will say, yes, he spoke very aggressively and belligerently. And and that's what many people liked about him. But it's like, we can see that that can create a pushback where it's like, you saw a big sign up in, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, Democrat socialist, or you saw people's immigration, uh, views shift, And like, some people might say like, well, that's, you know, liberal reactions to causing that. But it's also like you can imagine a less polarizing, you know, more persuasive version of Trump who wouldn't create that pushback. Right. And it's like the more, the more you approach you, you know, approach these things with a divisive framing, the more pushback you're going to create to your very ideas, which is kind of gets to me at like something I often emphasize too. It's like the conflict resolution ideas are not like just something we do to get along. They're actually like the most politically persuasive ideas. Like if you care about something, you're not gonna persuade people by insulting them and telling them they're, they're morally bankrupt, right? You're gonna persuade them by showing them, speaking to their more rational objections and saying, calmly saying like, can you see my point of view when I frame it in the most persuasive way? So to me, the, the attempts you know, to to achieve a political goal and the conflict resolution things are are completely aligned like but i think in many people's eyes they see them as like mutually exclusive but to me it's like you know otherwise if you if you take the divisive approaches you just create this like very dysfunctional landscape where like the the policies are swinging every few years between these like extreme poles and it's like Mm -hmm. an unstable seesaw almost you know worst case scenarios are, you know, civil war or something, but there's lesser things where just all the things are out of whack and you go back and forth between these kind of extreme fights between both sides. And you're not creating any, you're not actually achieving what you want to achieve in a stable way. Uh, you're just creating kind of a lose, lose place where everything's really unstable. And so I think, you know, letting politically passionate people see that these can be really powerful tools. And it's almost to me, like, who's going to use the tools of persuasion more effectively. Like, cause I see on both sides of any issue, I can imagine people winning over just a few percent more of people and just dis- decisively, you know, winning elections, if they were able to do that. So I see it as very politically uh, powerful tools when they're, when they're used. Right.
0: Well, and I want to, I want to hear more about the tools that you're talking about and also the, the sort of the pattern, as you see it playing out in a, I guess an unchecked unchecked unaware conflict cycle where you're not aware of using this inflammatory process to argue your point and then also a more ideal version of what a what a conflict cycle could look like. Um, you as you're talking about this like this inflammatory language and use Trump as an example, what I picture is somebody's coming in and and using these, bombastic rhetorical techniques it creates a kind of a, a bimodal escalation because you've got the people who want who are behind this guy's speech and and like what they're hearing and they get pumped up And then you have the other side that's triggered by this and frustrated and and find and has this uh knee-jerk anti reaction to this and they're getting pumped up. So you end up like like furthering this divide. In a way that escalates both sides and ratchets things up, and uh, I, I, I wonder about th- why are people drawn to that? Why, why do you have thoughts on that, or have you studied that? Why are people so in? Why do they want to get inflamed for their cause? Why do people find that passion and get so roused and seem to like really want to get pumped up about a fight that they want to fight?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I think, I think some of it can be tied to like the modern landscape of us being more isolated from each other. And, uh, you know, I talked about this in one of the podcast episodes I did about, you know, people have written a lot about the isolation of modern life We're more online. We have less social connections. We do less community oriented things together. And I think, I think some of that existential isolation, you know, uh, goes into like, well, how am I going to find meaning? Like there's a big fight over here that I, that I can feel like I'm a, I can get my meaning from this big fight that's happening, but that's, but also from the other side, it's like, you know, I I also get that there are things that are very important to us that we can be, that we can very much disagree on. Uh, so, you know, for people that do feel that way, I, I understand that too, about various issues. Like we can feel that there's something very bad happening. And it's like, the, the, both of those things can kind of be true, like understanding how people want to find meaning in these bigger divides and recognizing that there's real serious things that we disagree over. And I, and I bring it back to like the passion. I don't think the passion is the, is the problem because I think a more healthy version or a, a culturally healthier version of our divides looks like, you know, getting to the conflict resolution principle of, uh, being hard on ideas, but soft on people, right? It's like, we could speak in ways that point out the bad things we see, the bad ideas we see and focus on the ideas and less focus on like, these people are bad and horrible for having these ideas. And if we, and then that's actually a more persuasive way to make your case is like, talk about like, criticize the idea. And the more you focus on the people and their badness, the more you're gonna create the very pushback that, you know, that that you don't like. Uh, so I do think there are ways to arouse passion because I think that that's kind of a mistaken thing I see in a lot of political operators, uh, ways of, of thinking about things. It's like, well, we need that passion to, you know, fundraise or like, Mm -hmm. you know, get votes out. it's like, well, no, you don't need to call people morons and evil or whatever it is you're doing to, you know, get your point across. And it's like being willing to examine the divisiveness of your approaches And like, you know, you're in a, some of the people on your side's inability to even have a discussion, right. It's like the being willing to examine that is very important, I think. And, and, uh, and that's why I do think, you know, I I think a lot about like what would more more persuasive versions Mm -hmm. of people's arguments on both sides look like, Mm -hmm. I I, I think a lot about that while they can also, you know, achieve passion and get turnout and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Well I I like on on the website for your book there's a a graphic for a polarization feedback loop that you did and I think that's that describes a simple pattern that is really easy to grasp and would you mind sort of it doesn't whether it's that graphic or whether you have a different pattern in your mind could you kind of give a description of what the um what the problematic conflict process is as you see it happening in terms of pattern.
1: Yeah. So that, um, that was a graphic I made just because I hadn't, I I think it's a, it's a general kind of conflict concept. Uh, I don't want to give the idea that I came up with the concept, but I hadn't seen a good diagram kind of showing in an easy way, how it works. And so the the diagram I put together was basically like, we speak about the, uh, you know, the people in a conflict, one group speaks about the other side in a more insulting and demeaning and angry way. Uh, that that creates people on the other side who sees our group as more dangerous and more immoral. You know, they have lower and lower opinions of us. They become more likely to speak in more insulting and dehumanizing and demeaning ways. Uh, you know, that, that makes us see them as more immoral and more dangerous. We speak about them in more insulting and demeaning ways. So it's just this kind of vicious cycle that gets at kind of the fundamental aspect of conflict and, you know, that, that conflict can play out with all sorts of different issues. I think, I think the kind of like blinkered or, or narrow view that many people have when they're in a conflict, they can feel like this conflict is very special or unique to us. It's like, this is an Amer- a very distinctly American Republican, democratic, uh, Democrat conflict. Whereas like, if you start looking at how conflicts play out in so many ways, that's really, you know, this underlying dynamic of how it plays out with different issues. And I think part of like part of getting people to see this and help with it is getting them to see this kind of like a higher level of view of the, how the conflict occurs and allowing us to see the, the main contributors to it, you know. And I think, you know, for me, I focused more on the liberal side contributions because I think that's less examined, you know, and, and because the mainstream is so liberal dominated. So it's, there's more of blind spots about like people being like, well, how how can you say that liberals contribute? You know, it's like, but they're, you know, progressive people have written entire books about how liberals contribute to our divides, which, you know, drawing attention to some of those things can bring people's attention to like, okay, you might think, you know, for example, you might think Republicans are worse, but can you examine the reasons that have contributed to the things that, you know, that they're angry about and how the conflict progresses, right? that to me is very important because, you know, that, that's kind of how I see some of the value I'm bringing, because I just think that a lot of people are just afraid to talk about that on the liberal side. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like being more in that world, I can talk to those people. And I, I, I want to talk, I want to talk about that because we can really only change people that are kind of politically similar to us. Like a, a conservative couldn't come in and say, you know, somebody who's hardcore conservative, couldn't write the book I could speaking to a more liberal audience. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I, I would like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I asked people on the book, it's like, Hey, maybe conservatives who like this book would be willing to do a similar thing on their side. And I have, I actually know a couple of people in the conservative world who are interested in that. Like we've talked about like, well, what would a version of this book look like, you know uh, from a conservative angle for people who are politically passionate on those kinds of topics. And so to me, it's like, it's just about more people talking about the problem, however they do it. It's like, if, if, if we can at least align on, no matter our political viewpoints, we can at least align on how the conflicts get really bad. And, you know, then we can just disagree. Like, like somebody put it, uh, uh, we, Andrew Mouser, who a conservative person I talked to who was interested in these concepts. He's like, can we just disagree like adults? You know, can we just, if we're always going to fight each other on various things, like we clearly are, can we just disagree a- 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 like adults basically and do it maturely?
0: Hmm. Hmm. You know, I think the, the thing that's really brilliant about this is how it scales. It scales up and down because the same underlying processes at work in even uh, in marriages that are mm. where people mm-hmm. struggle. And, you know, you've brought it up to the, the national level or the political level, but it, it kind of is this underlying circuit that can mm-hmm. happen often. And one of the things, I, I don't know, maybe this is too far afield, but I wonder if when you say, can we just disagree like adults, I thought about the well. There's the whole cluster B hypothesis that um, Josh Slocum has talked about, and Chris Ruf- Rufo just wrote about. And we're talking about people who are experiencing or are examining the fact that at the population level, more people are having difficulty with emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Which I just maybe this is just too far afield, but I, I uh, something I thought of is if we have a a, a slide into less mature conflict dynamics in general would we not expect to see more of this kind of thing happening? And could that explain some of the extreme polarization we've been experiencing?
1: Yeah. And I have a few episodes kind of getting back to that, you know, kind of the more existential and psychological, you know, factors in this, because I see some of these things as kind of a uh, a self-reinforcing dynamic. It's like, you know, if some of the, if some of the factors in, in our culture you know, as examining like Jonathan Heights, you know, the coddling of the American mind, if some of those factors, some of those factors could be influencing polarization, making it worse. But then again, polarization could be influencing you know the conflict itself could be making people more emotional and more mm-hmm. prone to you know these kind of immature ways of dealing with disagreement, right? So I, I think for a lot of these things, it's such a complex dynamic because mm-hmm. the things people will point out as factors, it's like, yes, some of those may be factors probably, you know, many factors involved, but it's also like the very nature of conflict can exacerbate Mm -hmm. lots of those factors themselves. And so there can be this big feedback mechanism, which I think, you know, uh, is kind of like the, you know, a lot lot of people try to look for these magic bullet kind of things. It's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I found the main factor, Mm -hmm. but it's like the human, I I think just the human nature of conflict is just such an all-encompassing thing. It can draw yeah. in all these other things into the conflict and make us behave in weird, you know, unreasonable ways where we're like, how could somebody say that? Like, why, why would they do that? It makes no sense. And it's like, we're dealing with something so intrinsically human deep inside us that's being triggered and makes us behave in these really unreasonable ways on such a broad scale, you know. Uh at least that's how, yeah, that's how I see it.
0: Well, so. Uh, with with that picture of a dysfunctional or or escalating conflict cycle, I guess maybe not dysfunctional, but just an escalating conflict cycle. What what are some suggestions for how we can like if you wake up to the fact that you've been participating in this mm. and you want to do things differently? How can you do things differently while still maintaining your positions? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, I, I focus on that a little
1: bit at the end of my book where it's like, what do we do about this? Like for people who do see the problem, you know, as I've hopefully persuaded them to see it. I I think, you know, a big part of it is, is trying to take, you know, a big part of it is focusing on that, like hard on ideas, soft on people idea, you know, which can allow you to criticize whatever you want to criticize and even criticize specific people. As long as you're not like insulting the entire other group. Right. It's like we can, we like, I never feel, you know, barred from criticizing ideas or criticizing people. I I often do, but it's like how we do it. And and it's trying to remember that, like, even for your own benefit, it's like, you're not doing this to, you know, just be nice or get along. It's like, these things actually help you make more persuasive arguments, you know? So for people that are passionate, that that's one way to see it. And then be, you know, I think, for people that are, that are, you know, see the problem of, of increasing conflict and want to help with that. It's like taking a longer term uh, perspective of how we overcome these things and and recognizing that we're prone to like focusing, overly focusing on these immediate outrages of the day and, and trying to see it more longer term. It's like, well, yeah, the nature of conflict is that people on both sides are going to do, you know, some people on both sides are going to do increasingly unreasonable and and dumb and weird and, you know, even violent things, but it's recognizing how like both sides are going to take, you know, we have a tendency to take those things and work them into our like existing us versus them narrative. So I think part of it is like trying to take a step back and see the landscape of the problem and be like, am I overreacting to something that like, you know, am I contributing by overreacting to something that's fairly rare, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. what does it mean that like this X horrible thing happened? Does it really, tell us something about the horribleness of the other side in a nation of 300 million people. Right. It's like taking a step back and thinking like, well, if I care about, you know, a achieving my political goals or B reducing the, the, the uh, animosity, it's like, let's, let's take a step back and think about, well, what am I actually doing? Like if I post on social media, like, am I actually, if I, if I'm venting about something I hate, am I actually doing anything? Am I actually like achieving anything? Am I just like, adding to the noise of, of animosity of like just angering other people or getting people worked up about something that's, you know, I I think that about that a lot. I mean, I see so many people online, you know, across the political spectrum where their, their use of social media is just venting things, you know, they hate or venting things they're angry about. It's like, and I think for a lot of these people, they think that they're doing something useful and paying attention or being aware. And it's like, I would get people to question like, what are you, how are you actually using your time? Are you actually achieving anything? You know, uh, are, are you, are, you know, or would you be better off like volunteering for some local cause where you were felt like you were doing something good, you know, for, mm-hmm. for your community or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I think it's about this self-examination of like, what am I actually doing? Am I, am I just creating more animosity? Am I feeding into things? Um, so I think both of those things, it's like, yeah, be, the, the, examining our, our language and and how it can be overly uh increasing in animosity and then just just questioning how we're spending our time and our and our attention yeah
0: mm-hmm. so refining and examining our our goals and our actual behavior in relation to our goals mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah Some I think so
0: perspective taking
1: mm-hmm. it's 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 hard work I mean I think uh and if anyone's curious like I, I assembled a, a bunch of books on my American anger website from, you know, from, from looking at the problem from different angles. There's a lot of books out there. So if people don't want to read my book, there's, there's plenty of other books and it's American anger.com. But it, I, I think getting curious about the problem is a big part of it. You know, it's, it's just like, cause you're not going to do the other things unless you're kind of curious about like how, how conflicts play out and why that's a bad thing. Uh, so I think, yeah, even, even just exposing the nature of the problem is is a big part of getting people to even care why they, why they should care.
0: What kind of reception have you gotten for, since you've started talking about this topic specifically? And do you find that there's a lot of, um, are, are there a lot of people who are ready to start thinking this way and start engaging in a different way on issues that they're concerned about?
1: Yeah. I think there is a big demand out there. I think, you know, I think a lot of people even, you know, even the very politically passionate people can say that, yes, the us versus them animosity and contempt is out of hand. So I think there is a big demand for that. I think the thing I've seen is like people are curious about the ideas, but they, they are like, well, how is that possible? Because I'm very angry about stuff. So I think part of it, you know, I've seen a lot of people interested in these things and, and got, have gotten a lot of good feedback and, um, I think uh, a big part of this is trying to make the case to people, yeah, you know, why 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 they can think what what the path is basically, you know, if, even while you're very angry about various issues, seeing what that path is. So yeah, I have seen a lot of people, like I get yeah you know, I, I get a good amount of responses. I I have gotten a lot of followers on Twitter over the years just from going in various threads, uh, very angry threads, and posting you know kind of depolarizing ideas and different viewpoints. And, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of productive conversations with, you know, academics in the field who study the nature of conflict and, uh, have shown me a lot of support for the things I've said. So, yeah, I think that, I think that the, the, the demand is there, uh, um, for people. And then that's one reason I say, like, we just need more people thinking about it and talking about it, you know, whatever, however they, approach it. It's like, it's just kind of a lot, not well-known set of concepts because it's, Mm -hmm. there's so many like common objections to it, you know, that, that, that we need to overcome, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. I, um, I have talked with more, well, I guess since I've, since I've sort of pulled back from this left, right kind of thinking, which for me occurred over the last several years and uh, I I I watched this whole walk away movement happen with people who had become dissatisfied with with left-wing politics but still felt like they were more left of center. I've talked with <clears throat> excuse me, more conservative people probably and but then I than I probably had before. But I've also stopped really thinking in terms of left and right as much. Um, but it's interesting to sort of see the feedback that uh, that that I've gotten about politics, like comments on the channel and stuff. It's uh, the people who there's there's people at different stages, it seems, of being dissatisfied with with the way the politics are being done on the left, with feeling like the left has gone too far. <clears throat> and it seems like a very common thing for for liberals or or left wing people to kind of give their liberal cred as they are coming out with their arguments they're really trying to make a case that i i am somebody who's always been on the left i really am i'm not the I'm other side i'm one of the good guys i'm one yeah. of the good guys so yeah please listen to what i have to say and i i really um that's something i kind of have struggled to not do i don't want to mm. do that mm-hmm. because i don't want to engage on that level anymore i could do that but i don't mm-hmm. really i don't really want to but it's really interesting how people it, it a lot of this seems to be happening with people who are left of center but feel like the left went way too far.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can find, you know, there, there's many people that that talk about that. I mean, um political and and uh quite quite, you know, left-leaning political experts of various sorts like Francis Fukuyama talks about that, you know, seeing seeing uh, you know, getting back to like seeing how the left contributes to our divides and does divisive things. And I think one of the important things I didn't mention is like for the people that do feel kind of like politically homeless, you know, I've talked to a lot of those people. I think part of the effort of reducing conflicts, this conflict is um, getting those people to feel more empowered and to see the value that they can bring to the table, because I think what happens to a lot of those people is they kind of like drop out. They, they get frustrated. They, they're like, I'm not, I'm just not going to pay attention. Cause you know, they'll say things like, well, everybody's crazy now. I'm not, I'm just not going to pay attention. But I think uh part of that is, is making those people who are less, who are less tribal in nature, you know, see, see the value that they can bring and they can play an important role in this kind of work where they can bring like, Hey, I'm going to try to, talk people down, not, not about their beliefs, but about how they engage with people and the insults and the, the contempt. And it's like, I think they those, those people are more likely to be valuable as, as more like, you know, kind of mediators or, or uh, middle of the road kind of people who, uh, and I, I think we need to empower those people more and, and make them feel like, Hey, there's a patriotic or, or, uh, or however you want to frame it, a, a good, a good role that you can play that helps people and helps the country and helps us avoid worst case scenarios, you know, is, is making uh, you know, cause like you say, a lot of people just, the I think the labels just fundamentally mean less and less, the more, even in the best of times, like the most stable of times, those labels were kind of like rough to begin with. You know, you can read this book by the Lewis brothers. It's called like the myth of, you know, the myth of left and right or something like that. It talks about the kind of like, Nuance behind these kind of simplistic labels we mm-hmm. use, that, and and those things kind of break down more and more. The more turbulent a society becomes, so yeah, I think that I think that encouraging that audience is is important. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. it sounds like a large part of the the core of of this breaking this conflict polarization feedback loop is just recognizing that you you don't need to be so brutally dehumanizing to other people in order to get your point across. You can talk to people like adults and and state your and and respect their position while while stating your own. And it's Mm -hmm. just it's just pulling back from that that escalation cycle, Mm -hmm. but not while not giving up your position.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think getting people to see more of that and even, you know, even if they want to Criticize things harshly. It's like, hey, this idea is very, very stupid. And here's why. Like, that's better than saying these people are very stupid, right? It's like, yeah. So it is really about, to me, so much of it comes back to language. Whereas I think for a lot of people, they see language as like this side thing of Mm -hmm. like, you know, for me, it's like language is like the fundamental way we, you know, interact. It's the fundamental way we form stories. It's the Mm -hmm. fundamental way we create the pushback or, you know, how we interact with people. So to me, the language is, is key to it.
0: You know? And how would you communicate with someone who is really emotional about their side? How do you get across to someone or do you?
1: Yeah, it's uh that's tough. I mean, at some level, you know, I, I used to have a lot of pointless fights online and, and at some level, you just gotta be like getting back to the idea of like, how am I spending my time? Like, what am I actually accomplishing? Like am, what are my chances of actually having a, 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 a an actual, you know, meaningful conversation with this random person online or whoever, even, even somebody I know online, cause online's like the worst way to talk to somebody. So, you know, getting to that level of like seeing, well, what am I actually doing? You know, am I wasting my time? Is this person just going to keep insulting me? There's then there's no point in me engaging with them and trying to also keep in mind, like this person doesn't represent the entire other side, right? Like there's many mm-hmm. people on the other side of, of whichever you know, whichever side that will engage with you in more respectful and, and considerate ways. So it's like, you have to also remind yourself like this random encounter I'm having with whoever doesn't actually mean much in the big scheme of things. Right. Like, or it doesn't necessarily mean It doesn't represent people necessarily. So. Mm -hmm.
0: And, and what do you hope to see from, from this work that you've been doing? What, what is your personal hope for what happens next?
1: Well, yeah, people might get the idea that I'm like optimistic or something. I'm actually kind of pessimistic about how things will go, but I do think like if we're going to change things, I do think it requires more people to hear these ideas. And so, you know, and I'm not, obviously I'm not the only person working on these kind of things. There's whole organizations like uh, Brave Angels and Starts With Us and a host of other organizations and people. So it's like I see my role as just helping bring these ideas, one of many people to bring these ideas to different pockets of people. And, you know, if we do the work well, it just means we're going to, we're going to see a shift in the culture. You know, we'll still disagree and fight over things, but it will be disagreeing in a way that doesn't dehumanize. We'll be disagreeing, you know, and I really do believe this is a existential threat, not just to America, but to humanity, because you factor in like, we're going to create more and more powerful weapons. So you know, we're going to, one of these days we're going to create, you know, the the ability to create man-made diseases in your, in your basement is going to be easier and easier. So all it will take is like one really antisocial person to do a huge amount of harm. So you factor that. And it's like, we're really at some kind of cusp of like, I just, I just think there's a good likelihood we wipe ourselves out in a few decades or, Mm -hmm. you know, just with that factor. And so I really do think like, trying to get over the fundamental Uh, tendency for humans to hate each other and fight each other is kind of like what we need to do to survive long term. Like I see that as much more a threat than like AI and all these things that people talk about or or climate change. I feel like much more direct a threat is like our fundamental tendency to hate each other, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, that's how I do it.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's really. So with that in mind, it would, it's just incumbent on each person to try to overcome that to the extent that they can.
1: Yeah. And look for opportunities to, to do what they can, you know, and, and to spread those ideas and, and whatever way. I think there's many ways. I mean, one thing I'd like to see is more entertainment media, you know, like fictional things you know the fictional world is uh, or entertainment and creative world is so polarized with so many liberals uh, being in the those spaces it's like but imagine what it would look like if we saw more kind of bridge building or empathy building political works in the entertainment space and like how that would change the dialogue and like change people's empathy and help them see like oh you know as opposed to like what we, what we currently see which is like just a lot of dunking on people that disagree with us in the in the in the liberal you know entertainment space I I just think that's a big part of moving the needle too. And there, you know, that I saw the other day, there was this bridge entertainment group, uh, which was a nonprofit dedicated to trying to create more entertainment driven bridge building uh, narratives. So, I mean, stuff like that is uh, Hmm. I think a big part of changing the culture too. It's like, and I think people are ready for it. I mean, I talked to people on, on both sides of the divides who are like, yes, to change the culture, you know, we can imagine all these things and, 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 I think, I think more and more people are ready for those things. Like it, there, there's, there's less judgment. You know, we were at our peak of probably our peak theoretically of, uh, of animosity during, you know, COVID and the George Floyd things and such. And I think we've like taken it down a little bit from there, but there's a chance it could go up again. But it, I think, I think the, t- there's a, there's a window of, uh, at least an opportunity where many people are, are receptive to, to these ideas now, even if they may not know, you know, how, how they may have major objections in various ways to them, but it's like, if we can overcome those objections, then, uh, we can get people to see the value and, and, and start these culture changing things. Because I really do think, you know, research shows it's much easier to change the culture than we tend to think, you know, it's like, if we see a few people around us doing it, then that's a model for us doing something. And and, and actually takes a relatively few amount of people to be like, Oh, that's an acceptable way to be. I can be like that or whatever it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, um, <clears throat> the thing you said about the existential need for people to, for humans to overcome the tendency to hate each other, that, that is something that it seems like that's a, a big part of a lot of this activism that we're seeing is about looking for a bad guy in everything. There's an, there's a, there's definitely like the social justice rhetoric that there's a bad guy and it's, it's whatever it is that you're on the wrong side of their intersectionality matrix. Yeah. You know, usually you can point to the, the, the cishet white guy or whatever, but whatever power, iteration of that. Dynamics. Yeah. The yeah. power. Di- and it's, and it is so utterly dehumanizing and it doesn't offer a way back for that part for that other party because they are just, they're just the yeah. archetype of all that is wrong. And <clears throat> to me it seems like one of the scary things is that the automatic response is to is to be on the other side of that and fight that and and take that same energy and put it back towards the person who's giving it and i i really believe that what you're saying is it makes a lot of sense to me we really have to build a bridge we really have to stop that process and stop reacting the way that that we're we're programmed to automatically react to those kind of threats. We have to over we have to think with our higher self and with our our more rational and and long term interest, and not just take the bait and jump right into the fight.
1: Yeah, I think to your point, it's like you know, and I have a section in my book about the uh, you know social justice kind of dynamics, and and uh, examining that. I, I think part of that. I think the thing I see on the conservative side of these kind of issues is like, I think they'd be much more effective highlighting liberal people who have, instead of like forming their own criticisms, which is mainly just speaking to the conservative choir, it's like they'd be much more effective drawing attention to the, you know, people on the left who have have criticized these things from a, you know, in a much more liberal speaking way in the same way. I think that liberals critiquing conservative stuff would be much better suited drawing attention to conservatives who have criticized the more divisive stuff. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, being aware of like how we're likely to persuade people, you know, is very important. And I, and and that's the thing I see, you know, few people being willing to examine because there, there can be an incentive to like, oh, well, I want to, I want to, I want to score my points against the other side. The emphasis isn't on persuasion. It's on like, I want to, I want to show them how stupid they're being, you know? So, um, yeah, that, that's what I, I come back to is like, you know, fitting into that. We can work towards our political mm-hmm. goals and and be more persuasive and respectful. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to go through this with me and to talk about this project and, and the importance of it. Would you mind, um, giving your links and where can people find your work?
1: Yeah, you can check me out. Um, uh, a good place to start would probably be my podcast, which is uh, people who read people it's called but the website is uh behavior podcast.com. and I have links to other things from there like including to the book and uh I have a depolarization sub stack I have probably too many things going on but um uh, yeah thank you thanks a lot for having me and, and letting me uh share my ideas
0: absolutely thank you and I'll I'll put links to everything in the description so if people want to follow that they can go find you in those places thank you so much Zach
1: thanks Leslie